another episode of Radio Rounds, the podcast interview series presented by St. Louis Children's Hospital, covering pediatric topics of interest to doctors and healthcare professionals. Here's Melanie Cole. An increasing number of boys and girls are playing recreational and organized sports. As a result, there's a rise in the number of overuse injuries seen among children and adolescents. One such injury is spondylolysis, or PARS defect, which is marked by back pain. Here to tell us about that is Dr. Brian Kelly. He's a Washington University pediatric orthopedic surgeon at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Dr. Kelly, tell us what is spondylolysis. Uh, Thank you, Melanie. So spondylolysis, just breaking it down, comes from the, the Greek spondylo or spondylos, uh, meaning vertebra or spine, and lysis meaning dissolution. So what this specifically refers to is a defect or a break in some of the posterior part, posterior elements of the spine uh, that can occur as, as a result of repetitive cyclical loading of the spine. So tell us how that happens and what causes it, and, and really what sports that you see it most often. So we we know that spondylolysis, and specifically symptomatic spondylolysis, occurs more frequently in athletes whose sports require repetitive hyperextension of the lower back and lumbar spine. Uh, specific activities that that this is this is more common in are uh, sports like gymnastics with uh, repetitive tumbling and flips, uh, football down linemen who are always going from their three-point stance and popping up with that hyperextension moment uh, during that. Uh, Other sports like rowing, uh, volleyball, uh, uh, where you're constantly reaching back and arching your back to to get power for your serve or or for spiking. Uh, But it it can be seen really in any uh, any sport and tends to uh, be more symptomatic with activity. Is there both a hereditary and acquired risk factors? As you've talked about the sports where it might be most at risk, what about a hereditary factor? So there's there's certainly a subset of spondylolysis that we could probably consider developmental or congenital. Uh, there was a, a large study uh, done uh, following uh, a large group of kids uh, over childhood, and they obtained imaging of 500 four-year-olds lumbar spines, and approximately 4 to 5% of those children already had evidence of spondylolysis. And that probably rose to somewhere between 8 and 10% by the time they reached the age of 18. So we know that this can develop either as a more of a development or congenital way, uh, but there's certainly uh, a higher incidence of, of symptomatic spondylolysis, and uh, as we as we discussed, in those children who participate in those sports that require hyperextension. What are some of the hallmarks of it, and red flags that a pediatrician should be looking for? And if it's asymptomatic in a child, how would they know? So. Most spondylolysis is going to be asymptomatic and is often found incidentally when imaging for another condition or injury is obtained. Uh, there, there's really no way to, other than that incidental imaging, pick up on those uh, asymptomatic spondylo, uh, spondylolyses uh, that when a child is actually presenting with a symptomatic spondylolysis, uh, they're going to be complaining typically of lower back pain. It may be bilateral or or only on one side. 
Uh, and it typically is exacerbated with their activity and with sports. Uh, that often uh, kids are not having pain in between activity uh, with spondylolysis unless it's uh, a particularly uh, severe. The, the real hallmark on examination is pain with extension of the spine. So having the child trying to lean backwards in a standing position uh, should reproduce uh, that severe pain. Uh, and we, we all have pain when we lean too far back, uh, but Real symptomatic spondylolysis with any extension of the spine uh, can cause that severe pain. Typically, we do not see uh, nerve-type symptoms with pure spondylolysis, uh, that those things are pretty rare, uh, and would be more of a red flag of something else going on. Uh, other red flags uh, are constant pain or pain that is waking a child up from sleep in the middle of the night after they've fallen asleep, those sort of things don't typically go along with spondylolysis. Once diagnosed, can you predict risk factors for progression of the slip to spondylolisthesis in these children? So a very small percentage of patients who uh, have a spondylolysis, uh, because of that uh, disruption or disconnection of the posterior elements can develop a spondylolisthesis or a relative slippage of the vertebra uh, relative to one another. Uh, it's uh, actually very, very uncommon for a pure spondylolysis to, de- uh, to progress into a spondylolisthesis. Uh, in long-term studies, uh, only um, a small percentage of patients actually progress, and most of those don't progress to any sort of uh, significant uh, spondylolisthesis or slippage. Is there any way to prevent it? In terms of specifically preventing the pars defect or the pars fracture, the spondylolysis itself, there's not any specific things that can be done to help prevent it. Uh, what's more important is trying to prevent back pain and symptoms and trying to maintain uh, good aerobic fitness, uh, strong core muscles, strong back muscles. Uh, whether you have spondylolysis or not is really going to be our best defense uh, from developing that sort of musculoskeletal back pain and pain from spondylolysis as well. When do you feel a patient should be referred to a specialist doctor? So I think a- anytime there is concern for a spondylolysis, uh, whether that is based on exam or imaging, uh, it, it's uh, appropriate to refer that patient to uh, someone who treats and, and manages spondylolysis regularly. Speak a little bit about treatment. What's the first line of conservative management, and are there some long-term effects or complications if it's not found early on? So the mainstay of treatment for spondylolysis, fortunately, is non-operative. And uh, a vast majority of patients, uh, 80 to 90 percent, will get significant long-term relief with just non-operative treatment. So when I see a patient who I suspect will have a spondylolysis, uh, I do my best to confirm that uh, with, with imaging, starting with just plain radiographs a lateral or spot lateral of the lumbar spine or lumbosacral junction being the most important uh, study to uh, help us diagnose spondylolysis. Because really the, the, the treatment pathways for low back pain with and without spondylolysis are very different. When we confirm a spondylolysis, the first thing that I do is remove a child from the activities that are 
exacerbating their pain. And that really means shutting the child down, taking them out of all sports, and really avoiding all activities that they can reasonably avoid that are causing some of this back pain. And typically, with a period of activity restriction uh, that sometimes can last two, three months or more, most children will feel significant relief and feel much better. At that point, the next steps typically are to, uh, in, in my practice, to start physical therapy, which tends to focus on core and back strengthening and really getting the child back into the sports that they, they want to participate in. In terms of long-term effects, uh, what we know about spondylolysis is that it does not need to heal, even though we, we think of these things as, as stress fractures or, or, or fractures. Uh, it does not need to heal for a child to be pain-free and participate in all the activities that they want. And that we know that people with spondylolysis as adults have the same incidence of back pain as people without spondylolysis. So the symptomatic spondylolysis seems to, or typically is, uh, uh, present really in, in childhood and adolescence. And if you can get most kids through this period where they're having difficulty playing their sports uh, and having pain uh, with these non-operative means, typically they're going to they're going to go on to to do very well, participate in the things they want to, and then have the same symptoms with their back that the, the general population has as adults. Isn't that so interesting, Dr. Kelly? What else can a pediatrician expect from the ortho team at Children's after referring a patient, and what would you like referring physicians to know about spondylolysis? So I think that's what I just mentioned is a, is a very important part of it and something I stress to all of my patients, that the goal is not healing of this fracture. The goal is return to pain-free activity uh, and return to activity that the child wants uh, to participate in. And like I said, that, that often in, involves a, a long period out of sports, which is, which is often very difficult for our adolescent patients, but really does uh, tend to be effective. Uh, I tend not to use a brace that uh, our, best, our best evidence on brace use for this condition doesn't support it uh, having any long-term benefits. Uh, and the uh, surgical treatment of spondylolysis is really reserved for those rare, rare cases where children have continued pain and symptoms uh, despite all of these non-operative means over a period of at least three to six months and are unable to return to the sports that they want to participate in. And it is unacceptable for them to uh, give up those sports or modify their activity around their back pain. It's great information. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise for other providers on what to look for for spondylolysis and what treatment options might be available. Thank you again. To consult with a specialist, a physician can refer a patient by calling the Children's Direct Physician Access Line at 1-800-678-HELP. That's 1-800-678-4357. You're listening to Radio Rounds with St. Louis Children's Hospital. For more information on resources available at St. Louis Children's Hospital, you can go to stlouischildrens.org. That's stlouischildrens.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.